The following podcast was produced by Latter Day Radio. For more information, visit latterdayradio.com. Welcome back to Latter Day Radio. So glad you found us. It's not easy, I know that. But if you ever get lost, you can always go to the web and type in latterdayradio.com. Everything's there. If you have a little time, please drop me, Greg Gerard, a short email telling me how you found us, whether it was on Spotify, iTunes, Google Music, or wherever. And if you're so inclined, you could always send us some alms. No credit cards needed. Just send me an email at studio at latterdayradio.com, and I'll tell you how to, uh, how to support us. Okay, enough of the pandering. In 2009, Jeffrey R. Holland delivered one of his finest conference addresses ever. That was in October. His title, Safety for the Soul. We live in times of peril, and he made the best case ever for holding on to the Book of Mormon when we feel our faith has been shaken. He pointed out how critics of the church sometimes find the tiniest flaws in our leaders and doctrine or whatever, and in what they say or do, the tiniest thing. These tiny things can become stones of stumbling or rocks of offense, And we all have family or friends who have been tripped up, so to speak. So I have some expert help today. Bruce Porter is here with us all the way from Arizona. His graduate degrees uh, include one from uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's been teaching and traveling all over the world, especially the Mideast, for 30-plus years. Among other things, he's an expert on the Book of Abraham and all things ancient. So, uh, Bruce, here's my question. What are these stones of stumbling or rocks of offense, including the book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price, that trip people up? And how can we help others stay on the gospel path? Greg, the, um, one of the things that uh, most people uh, seem to have problems with is the, what, they call the tra- what we might call the translation of the book of Abraham. Translation becomes a big thing, not only in the book of Abraham, but also in the book of Mormon. But in Abraham in particular, because we have, Abraham is the only illustrated scripture that we have. And we have, we have actually have three different um, Egyptian vignettes in the book of Abraham. And of course, people immediately uh, begin or want to translate those vignettes. And in particularly, uh, facsimile number two is the one that people always fall to because there's more uh, hieroglyphics there than any of the others. And so they'll have that translated, and many scholars can translate that, and other scholars can translate it, and I've got my own translations as well as uh, other people's translations of that facsimile. And it's what they will always say is it doesn't say what it doesn't what it actually says in scholastic translation does not say what Joseph Smith said it said. Now, there's an issue there. Um, that issue is is that you need to understand the word translation for one thing. Now, when I translate an ancient record, I go through and you can uh, you can transliterate it, and then you can actually uh, translate the transliteration into English, and then you go have to go back and uh, um, translate it into grammatical English. That's what you do when you when you when you understand the language intellectually. Uh, Joseph Smith didn't do that. He couldn't do that. He knew he couldn't do that, and uh, as in the Book of Mormon, he said he translated by the gift and power of God. Egyptian hadn't even been really cracked at the time that Joseph Smith receives the papyrus. And so um, much of what he received was not a direct tra- translation from an intellectual translation. He couldn't translate the Book of Mormon, and so he says uh, 
it was done by the gift and power of God. He used the Urim and Thummim, which is a connection to that gift and power of God. He couldn't translate it. He didn't translate it. But every time Joseph gave us an ancient record, he called it a translation. The Book of Mormon was an ancient record. He called it a translation. The Book of Abraham, an ancient record. He called it a translation. The Book of Moses, even though it was inspired uh, from Genesis, he called it a translation because it was an ancient record. The parchment hit up by John that we see in the Doctrine and Covenants, he called that a translation. If it was an ancient record at one time and he rendered it to us in English by the gift and power of God because he had no other way to do it, by the gift and power of God, it was a translation because it was an ancient record. And he rendered it into English from another language. So anything that he calls a translation was an ancient record. Now, in regard to the book of Abraham, in fact, seemingly number two, people will translate that and say, well, it doesn't say what Joseph Smith says it says. Joseph Smith didn't translate it. He didn't translate it. If you notice at the top of the page of each facsimile, it does not say translation. It says explanation. Even Abraham in his record, when it comes to the facsimiles that we have in Abraham, Abraham says, well, this happened to me, and it's a lot like you see uh, in this representation. He says, and I will refer you to the representation at the beginning of this record. So even Abraham is saying the facsimiles are representations. are not meant to be translation. Joseph Smith doesn't call uh, what's translated or what we assume is a translation. In fact, simile number two, he calls it an explanation. Klaus Baer, who worked uh, close with Brother Nibley, said in, in regard to facsimile number two, which is the hypocephalus, that's the round one, hypo meaning under and cephalus meaning under the head, um, uh, said, I can tell you what it says, but I can't tell you what it means. Now, with Joseph Smith's explanation, Joseph Smith is not saying, he is what Joseph Smith is saying. He's saying, I'm not telling you what it says. I'm telling you what it means. That's why Joseph didn't call those translations. He called them explanations. And so we have a tendency to, in trying to disprove Joseph Smith or trying to disprove the translation, say, well, it uh, doesn't talk about kolob and oliblish in this uh, in this." Uh, uh, hypocephalus. It's not supposed to. It shouldn't do. Because Joseph Smith isn't giving us a translation. He's given us an explanation saying this represents this and this represents that. He's not saying it says this or says that. Now we say, well, how can somebody translate by the gift and power of God? Then you have to ask yourself the question, how did Moses give us the book of Genesis? Moses is 1300 AD. The stories in Genesis go back to from Adam, 4,000 B.C., right up to the time of Joseph, which is 100 years before Moses. So how did, uh, how did Moses give us the book of Genesis, if not by the gift and power of God? So the book of Abraham, we always try and say, well, he had to use the, he used the, trans, uh, he used the papyrus as a translation. That's not necessarily true. Every revelation requires a catalyst. Joseph, there isn't one revelation that came to Joseph Smith in the Doctrine and Covenants that he didn't first go to the Lord with a question. There's an old Jewish saying that there's no stirring above until there's a stirring below. The heavens don't open until somebody's prepared down below. You don't bless the food before you prepare the food. It's, it's on the table when you bless it. 
In the same way with light and truth. There's no stirring above until there's a stirring below. God didn't come to Joseph Smith and, and just poof the first vision on him without him expecting anything. He waited for him to be prepared to ask the question so that he could receive the answer. And every revelation requires a catalyst. The Lord tells Joseph Smith in, uh, in the Kirtland era, when he gets to Kirtland, he says, you've got to start translating the Bible. You need to translate the Bible. You need to start translating that Bible. And why? Because that translation of the Bible created, generated the questions. It became the catalyst that generated the questions for Joseph Smith to go to the Lord with so that he could receive the revelations necessary for the restoration of the church. He's translating the Book of Mormon and reads about baptism. He goes to the Lord with a question. Uh, the first vision, Joseph has a question, which church is the right? Which church is right? He goes to the Lord with a question. The revelation comes. There's no stirring above until there's a stirring below. And just as the plates, Joseph didn't need, he had no ability to translate uh, directly from the plates. So he didn't need to look at the plates. It becomes a catalyst for the revelation, uh, which becomes the translation of the Book of Mormon or the Nephite record. Uh, he doesn't have the parchment hit up by John, but the question about John becomes the catalyst that leads to the revelation of the translation of the parchment hit up by John. He doesn't have the original manuscript of Genesis, but he has the question going to the Lord, which Genesis becomes the catalyst for the revelation, which we call the inspired version. He doesn't necessarily know how to translate Egyptian hieroglyphics, but he knows who was in Egypt. He knows Joseph was there, that Abraham was there, that Moses was there. And knowing that, knowing that these prophets were there, these, this papyrus becomes the catalyst for the revelation of the translation of the book of Abraham, just as Moses gives us the revelation of the translation of the ancient patriarchs that are, that, are, that are talked about in the book of Genesis. So we sometimes begin focusing on the chips rather than actually the product. And if, as we look at the Pearl of Great Price, we know that it consists of uh, four different books, four parts, the Book of Abraham, the Book of Moses, uh, the uh, uh, Joseph Smith's history, and then the translation, uh, the the re-explanation of Matthew ch uh, chapter 24. How did each of those come about, and what can we learn as we read them, especially when we look at modern findings and evidence and research that should actually support our faith rather than uh, challenge it? You know, there's, uh, there's something interesting about the Pearl of Great Price. Brother Nibley once said, um, and I firmly believe it, that the Pearl of Great Price is the book that answers all the questions. Um, and we have uh, in our scriptures and in scriptural history, we have what we call the seven major dispensations. And each of the seven major dispensations are represented in the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, you have the dispensation of Adam uh, represented with uh, from the creation of Adam in chapter 4 through Adam's life in chapter 5. The next dispensation would be that of Enoch, and that's represented in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Moses uh, because that's the, that's the sections that talk about Enoch and where Enoch is actually doing the talking. Um, you have the dispensation of Noah talked about in chapter 8 as Noah records uh, the statements that... Uh, uh, between him and God and, and, the, and the preparations he's making before the flood and the family. 
uh, we have the dispensation of Abraham, obviously, in the book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, we have the dispensation of Moses as he's receiving the inspiration for the translation of the book of Genesis and the inspired part of the book of Genesis that we see there in the opening chapters of, of Moses, chapters 1 through, uh, through 4, basically, uh, as, it, as it appears in, our, in Genesis and Exodus. Um, we have the dispensation of the fullness of times with Christ in, in, uh, in the inspired version of Matthew 24. That's mentioned in, and, and in the Pearl of Great Price. So that dispensation of the fullness of times is there, which is an explanation of how it's leading up to the end times. We have the dispensation of the fullness of times, uh, the dispensation of Joseph Smith in the Joseph Smith history. There's something interesting about each of these um, each of these dispensations, and as they're each talked about in the um, in the Pearl of Great Price, there's a uh, there's a pattern that's called the apocalyptic um, pattern. The apocalyptic pattern, when you're doing research in ancient records, you look for patterns that show up in real records to determine how true a record might be. I don't know if I can remember them all, but I think I can, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and outline them for you. It's not anything I was planning on. But there's always a situation. Um, that's the first part. There's always some type of situation that causes the second one, the second element, the hero's reaction to the situation. Now, the hero's reaction to the situation always gets a response from God. And that response is always a theophany or and or a cosmology, always. And then after that theophany and or cosmology, then you have the mission of the hero or the prophet, what he's supposed to do with it. Uh, actually, it comes into his testimony to his family first, and then you have the mission of that prophet or hero, and then the martyrdom of the prophet or hero is talked about. Now, if you can keep those in mind, I, and I hope I can at the same time, but so you have the situation. And let's, I'll give you an example that's a good example, or that's an easy one to follow. What's the situation at the time of Lehi? Looking at this apocalyptic theme, the, the, the apocalyptic themes or these apocalyptic patterns, let's take the Book of Mormon and look at the apocalyptic themes here. The situation, what's the situation as the Book of Mormon begins? There's spiritual wickedness in Jerusalem. Spiritual wickedness. What's Lehi's reaction to the situation? Yes, the Lord and the Lord says, get out of town. As he went forth, he prayed, it says. And then what's the Lord's response? If you remember, he's lying on his bed, and the heavens open, and he sees, he sees numberless concourses of angels. Do you realize that the numberless concourses of angels, as that phrase, is always referenced to the council in heaven and the really? creation epic? And then his mission, you need to take your family and get out of town. And his testimony uh, to his family about that mission in their salvation and then finally, his death is talked about in Second Nephi. Now, that's the apocalyptic theme showing up. Now, let's let's look at um, uh, let's look at another. Let's look at Joseph Smith in the first vision. What are, what is the situation? 
Which church should I join? There's many churches. It's the burned out district. Everybody is saying, come here, come follow me. Lo, he is here. Lo, he is there. That's the situation. What's Joseph Smith's reaction to the situation? He searches in the Bible, and James tells him to go pray. And so he goes and prays. And then the Lord's response to the, his reaction to the situation? Theophany. A theophany. So it always comes in a theophany and or a cosmology. So he receives a theophany. Based he, on the question. Based on the question. that There has to be a catalyst. The heavens don't open. And a problem solution. Exactly. So he goes home. He bears testimony to his family. They begin to believe it. And what's his mission? Leave town. Okay. We see the same thing. Now let's look at Moses. What's the situation? <laughs> the children of Israel are in bondage. And what's his reaction to the situation? Leave town. He leaves town. He protects one of them and has to leave town. And then he goes up to Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. And what's the Lord's answer to his reaction to the situation? Leave town. <laughs> he leaves town. Go back home. And he gets a vision, too. He sees God. He comes to the burning bush. And this is why we have the creation epic, because he not only has a theophany, but he also has a cosmology. He sees a cosmology, the creation of the earth. First Nephi chapter 8 is a cosmology. It is, exactly. So each one, if you, these themes, these apocalyptic themes that I've given you or, sh or shared with you, if you go to each one of the dispensations that are described in the Pearl of Great Prize, you find all of these themes in each one of those dispensations in the Pearl of Great Price. This is something Joseph Smith would have never known about, couldn't have known about. It's evidence of veracity. It is. Now, when you look at an ancient text or read an ancient text, I look for those themes. I look to see if it's real because it is, that's the way God works. And we see also these evidences and um, patterns Throughout, not just in our church or in a Judeo-Christian uh, historical sense, but throughout the world, there's a uh, a son who is killed, who uh, the son of son of God or the son of the Creator, who comes to Earth to save people. It's throughout history, isn't it? It's everywhere. It is. Uh, Joseph Campbell, who was considered the world's leading. Um, uh, authority on mythology. He was an atheist. I say was because he's now passed on, but um, he was an atheist, and he wrote a book. He, uh, in doing his uh, work in mythology, he realized that the same story shows up over and over again. And it's always, there's a father god, and they, he has a son, and the son comes to the earth, and, and the son is killed by an evil brother. The son is then, after his death, he's then resurrected, and then he's He's uh, exalted, uh, which allows everyone to be exalted. Joseph Campbell realized that that was all over the place, and he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces because the same story shows up all over the place, the, almost the exact same story. And being an atheist, he, in his mind, he was trying to figure out, okay, how come it's, it's in the islands of, the, of, of um, Polynesia or in, in the South Pacific, and why is it... Uh, in Egypt, and why is it in Mesopotamia, and why is it in China? So he's trying to figure out how come the same story about a, f about a god who has a son who comes to the earth and who dies because of, the, uh, of an evil brother and, and is resurrected. He's trying to figure out how it comes, and his only solution was is what we call uh, evolution. He says, well, because man evolved, 
the mind of man evolves the same way. Therefore, the mind of man is going to come up with the very same things. It's very horror like isn't it? <laughs> very, very much so. And so that was his, his solution for answering that. Now, coming back just for a second, I just want to come back to this concept of these apocalyptic themes. There's a situation. There's the reaction to the situation. There's the Lord's reply to that situation. There's the testimony, and then there's the mission, and then the death. Now, we have, to, we have a life going on right now. I mean, we're, we're alive in our day, in our time. And we have to ask ourselves, kind of like Noah did, what's the situation right now? It seems apocalyptic to me. It does. Apocalyptic. Not an then we have to ask ourselves, what's going to be our reaction to the situation? We, leave t- we can't leave town. <laughs> we can't. We're here. Not unless, not unless a large spacecraft comes or maybe that's what the rapture is all about uh, <laughs> who knows our evangelical friends like to talk about yeah well we should have a reaction to the situation we ought to be worried about what's happening and what's the lord's reply we have the lord's reply in the scriptures we have the same lord the, the same reply is found in the pearl of great price and all all of those major dispensations we know and have the testimony of those who have had that theophany and had that cosmo- and seen that cosmology, and both Moses and Abraham have the same thing. Uh, and then we have to have we got the Lord's reply, and then we have to figure out what our mission is in response to the Lord's reply. What's our responsibility? Yeah, exactly. What are we supposed to do? You know, because we're like Lehi, we want to save our families. We do, and that's that's the key thing. And we need to be reacting to the situation in such a way that we can save both temporally as well and, more importantly, spiritually, uh, our, our families, our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. I've always been impressed with First Nephi chapter 8, simply because it comes at the first of the Book of Mormon. We realize that wasn't the first part of the book that Joseph Smith received. But if you have to assume that he just kind of made it up out of whole cloth, the, the whole story of a father grieving for his family is not something that a 23-year-old young man would consider. You don't think about that until you're a grandfather, until you have grown children and you think, why are they not doing what I taught them? And then Lehi is mourning of what Laman and, and Lemuel have done, and it causes great anguish in him. Unless you've been a parent, especially a parent of someone who's over a certain age, you don't know what that anguish is. Joseph Smith could not have known that. I never thought at the age of 22 or 23 that any of my children wouldn't do exactly what I taught them. Who, who, who at 20 was even thinking about children? <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, there's also evidences inside the Pearl of Great Price if you actually read the the assigned material. And that's my biggest problem with people who, uh, as uh, Elder Holland talks about, um, go out st- st- um, stumbling on their st- uh, st- stumbling rocks. What is it? Stone of stumbling, rock of offense. He says they have to go out uh, on their hands and knees, crawling over and under and through all of the testimony, all all of the the evidences that are there in order to leave this church there are evidences if you want to find them inside of the book of mormon you're telling them talking about that earlier today about uh, 
uh, about the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Book of Enoch. Why don't you explain that to us? Yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the in the late 40s, uh, you know, basically 47 through 52 in that area, in that time period. Um, the scrolls there there was a there was part of every book of the Bible except those that uh, were from basically from the Babylonian captivity, but uh, from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. There was two scrolls that come up, or two texts that uh, rise to the top uh, like cream, and one was Isaiah. The largest scroll, uh, most complete scroll they found was the Isaiah scroll, almost uh, 15 to 18 feet long, um, and contained the the whole book of Isaiah. And there were more copies of that in the Dead Sea Scrolls than any of the others. The second only to Isaiah that that had more copies was the Book of Enoch. Now, I think, well, what does that have to do with anything? We don't have a Book of Enoch. Well, we do have a Book of Enoch. We have two chapters in the Book of Moses. And and even the Lord tells us in section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, it talks about when Adam... Three years previous to the death of Adam, he got a, he gathered all his righteous posterity into the valley of Adam on Diamond, and um, it says there he uh, uh, predicted or prophesied all things that should befall upon his posterity until the last or the latest generation, and then it says, and these things uh, are contained in the Book of Enoch, which will be revealed in the Lord's own due time. Well. The book of Enoch that we have in 6 and 7 was given long before that section 107 was given, which means there's still more to come. There's yet to come. But in our Pearl of Great Price in 1830, uh, the Book of Mormon was published, um, and the church was organized in April of 1830. Uh, the Book of Mormon already had to, be, had to be published before the church could be organized. But, but uh, within six months after the organization of the church, uh, the prophet Joseph had given us the Book of Moses. Well, in the Book of Moses and in the Enoch chapters, which are 6 and 7, Enoch uh, describes uh, in that book about a man by the name of Mahijah who comes to Enoch and begins questioning Enoch on where did he come from, why is he here, uh, what's he trying to accomplish, why is he teaching these things. Well, it's unusual uh, for a text of that age that they would actually mention a man by, by, the, by name, by his personal name, Mahijah. Well, that story had never been seen. It was never seen um, until 19, about 1978. When the Dead Seas were, were discovered, they were, they were given, uh, each scroll was given to a different scholar uh, to translate uh, by the state of Israel. And so the Enoch material was given to a man um, uh, by Father Millick. Now, most of the scholars that translated belonged to a church. There were Catholic scholars, Jewish scholars, Protestant scholars. Uh, we even have some LDS scholars today who are, uh, who are uh, Dead Sea uh, translators. Um, but the Enoch uh, book uh, was given, uh, or parchment, or, and um, fragments were given to a man by the name of Millick. Father, he was Catholic, uh, uh, J.T. Millick. He translated the Dead Sea Enoch and, and published a book on it in 1978. Uh, well, in that book, there was a story there of a man by the name of Mahijah who comes to Enoch and begins asking him questions of why he was there and what he was doing and what he was trying to accomplish. He was sent by the giants to, do, to ask, um, ask Enoch these questions. 
Well, the only time that story that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, about Mahayaja, the only time that story had ever been talked about with that personal name was in 1830 when Joseph Smith put it in our Book of Moses, when it was revealed to him in the Book of Moses. That's the only time that that, that man with that personal name, and it just so happens that uh, in 1978 that when the Dead Sea Scrolls are translated, or at least that particular book, there's the exact same story that Joseph Smith gave us in 1830. Now, Father Millett came to BYU uh, to speak uh, back in that time, and I was there around there at that time. He came to speak, and and uh, Nibley was walking across campus with Father Millett, and he says to him, um, he says, about Mahaija, and Father Millett stopped and put his hands up in the air and says, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to say anything about it. Someday we're going to know where Joseph Smith got his information from because the only two times that that story and that personal name had ever been seen was in 1830 with Joseph Smith and then again in 1978 when Father Millick translated the Dead Sea Scrolls. He, of course, had a faith he needed to, to defend, and he was sticking by it. But what about Joseph Campbell? Uh, I wonder sometimes why people are so adamant about uh, defending the fact that they believe that there is no God. Why would what you know? Richard Dawkins is an example uh, of a man. If if you've listened to some of our other podcasts on um, on Darwinism and um, near death experiences and things like that. Uh, these are these are people who are fervently believers in an unreligion. Their religion is that there is no God, and they and they and they defend it like a like a Muslim or a Catholic would or a Mormon would, as if it were a belief. How can an unbelief be a belief? That is the belief. Their belief is an unbelief. You know, it's. Um there, there's two phrases that show up in our scripture, or a phrase that shows up twice in our scripture. And that phrase is uh, to act in futurity. To act in futurity. Now, it's what that means is that um, uh, where it shows up in the Doctrine and Covenants, it says that we need to act in futurity according to the moral agency given to us from God. Now, to act in futurity means that I can do something now expecting a reward or punishment or some type of return in the far future, like life after death. Now, this belief in unbelief is like an animal because I can take my treat and I can take my dog and I can have my dog roll over for that treat. That dog is not rolling over so that it can have a treat after death. It's rolling over for a treat right now. That's the extent of its ability and its, and its power to reason. But mankind is the only creature that has the ability to conceive of something it cannot see, to conceive of a God and creator, and to conceive of a reward or punishment that will not even come in this life. And that very fact alone that we have that ability... is evidence of... of, of <laughs> Spiritual existence of exactly. some kind. Of eternity. Exactly. 
So that is evidence alone. And the person that says, I can't, I have no belief, that's my belief, is that there's no unbelief, no belief, is what he's doing is lowering himself to the level of the dog that rolls over for a treat right now. But there are treats. <laughs> and, and, we have to, and we have to remember that there, that there are treats. Uh, anything else that you might want to, oh, I know one thing I was going to ask you. There are other evidences inside the, the text of the, um, for example, the book of Abraham. He mentions things about his father's house, and that same thing is mentioned in Islam and in the Quran, right? Uh, it is. There's multiple things that are mentioned. You know what we see particularly in I think in Moses and Abraham and the, and, the, and the works that Joseph Smith gave us in the Pearl of Great Price, uh, we see in multiple texts around the ancient world as well as in the Quran. For one, if I might just give an example if you want one. I want one. Is um, the origin of evil. We're about the only church today that believes in a council in heaven and a pre-earth life. And, and in that council of heaven, we're basically the only religion uh, and faith that believes that there was that spirits are eternal and there was this argument between uh, Lucifer and and uh, and God and the plan that was going to be presented and and that Lucifer was cast out now it's mentioned in in uh, the book of revelations but most churches don't believe in this council or the eternal nature of spirits I, and I don't know how they can't but most faiths believe that eternity only exists one direction, that we didn't exist before we came here, but we will exist after we leave here. They, if eternity exists, it has to go both directions. I thought the Orthodox, uh, some of the Orthodox churches have a, have a belief about uh, eternalism. Some, they, a little bit they do, but not in the eternal nature of the spirit that's going to be there forever. No, and so we're really the only ones that, I mean, there's, there's other, if you get into Swedenborg and some of those others, you see a little bit, uh, a little bit of... Uh, or maybe Far East religions like uh, Hinduism or something. Yeah, but that... They're, but they're talking about... Uh, um, reincarnation. Reincarnation. Yeah, you're moving from one life to the next life. But we're one of the only ones that say that the, the spirit is eternal and we existed before, which places a plan now. Now, Joseph... Joseph is really the uh, is the originator of that. If he's uninspired, or he is a prophet, if he is inspired in teaching us these doctrines. If he wasn't inspired, he's clever and, and one of the most clever people in the world. Or else he's a fool, you know, to to risk his life and his family's life for something that might be untrue. So, but this concept of the council in heaven is one that shows up all over the place in the ancient records. Uh, so much, so much so that it's 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 almost ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's uh, the Council in Heaven is in the um, is in the Book of um, uh, Bartholomew, um, uh, the Gospel of Bartholomew, Bartholomew, the Book of John the Evangelist. It's in uh, the Latin recent uh, the uh, Book of Adam and Eve. That's in the Vatican Library. It's uh, it's in the Discourse on the Abitin, a Coptic text. It's it's in seven different chapters uh, or seven different surahs in the Quran of the council in heaven and the, and the casting out of Satan and the eternal nature of our spirits is, is in all of these ancient texts. And it's just, there's one, this discourse on the Abitan is just phenomenal. 
And, and actually, President uh, Elder Nelson, when he was uh, uh, in the Quorum of the Twelve, actually quoted it, I think it was twice in general conference, quoted the Discourse on the Abitan. It's a Coptic text. And I thought the only people that had a copy of it here was, uh, was myself and, and Nibley. I've got the books that it came out of, the Coptic text, as well as an old translation by Budge. But, but he quoted it in general conference, and I thought that was very interesting. And I wondered how he got it. And he was in England, and he ran across it in a bookstore in England. And then it was important enough for him to stop, take the time, and, and copy it out of the book on a piece of paper. Uh, but the text is... It opened up my eyes to the, some of the other doctrines, and uh, I don't know if you have time to get into it. I'd like to sometime, but... Um, Why don't it, you give us a 60-second version? Okay. <laughs> give us 90 seconds. We're okay. We can keep, let this run all day. Um, it's what it is. Um, it says God... Uh, th- this is from the 40-day literature. The 40-day literature is... Uh, is um, uh, are texts that deal with Christ's ministry after his resurrection. And we believe he was giving them information about the temple. Exactly. What we it's think. temple information. It's mm-hmm. coming back to this temple information. In the 40-day literature, the question is almost always the same from the apostles. Look, you've sent us out to teach the gospel. We're to go out and talk to people and baptize everybody and teach them. But what are we supposed to say when they tell, when they begin asking us these terrible questions like, well, where did we come from? How come there's evil in the world? How do we control it? Uh, um, why is there sin? And why is there pain and suffering? In almost all of the 40-day literature, that's how you tell that it is because they begin asking these questions, and then Christ begins to respond. In one case, they even, they even come to Mary and they say, Mary, uh, you have a better relationship with Christ than I do, than we do. Can you go ask him these questions? Because he'll probably tell you. He might not tell us. He might get upset with us. But in the Discourse on the Abitan, it's Timothy of Alexandria. It comes from Alexandria, Egypt, which was the intellectual capital of the world at that time. This is about 380 A.D., Okay. 385, um, I think 383 to 385. He comes to Jerusalem. Well, there's a libra- library and a librarian in Jerusalem that has kept all of the early Christian records from from the time of the apostles all through this time. And Timothy from Alexandria is, is at Jerusalem, and he says, I have heard of a book called The Discourse on the Abitan, and I would like to read that. And so he leaves that with the library, and he goes out and does his business for a while, and then he comes back in the library and says, I found, I found it. So Timothy, he's, an art, he's the bishop. He's a bishop of Alexandria. He writes it down. And what he writes down I find most, most interesting. And it, it's, it's right in line what we, or close in line what we learned from Joseph Smith, as well as what's in these other ancient texts that are in the Vatican and elsewhere, and in, in, the, in, the, in the surahs in the Quran. But it talks about God, it says, and I'll try and go through it quickly, um, God created the heaven and the earth, um, um, and it's all created. And the garden is now planted. And the council is there. And God is there, and all of the spirits are there in this council. And God sends the angel Moriel down to the earth, and we see him showing up in the same, in the same context in other ancient texts. Moriel goes down to the earth and brings back the elements of the earth to the council in heaven. And God then takes the elements of the earth and fashions man, uh, the body of Adam, out of the elements of the earth. Now, 
you have to be, in order to be governed by natural law, you have to be created from the sphere in which that natural law is going to have control. So we can say Adam was created from the dust of the earth, the elements of the earth. Yes, he was, because he has to be governed by natural law. And Joseph Smith made some changes, in, even in the inspired version, where it said Adam was a son of God. He changed it to say Adam was formed of God. And so in this text, the elements of the earth are brought back to the council in heaven, and he fashions the body of Adam out of the elements of earth. And it says that, and it left him, and he left him lying there for 40 days and 40 nights and heaved sighs over him daily. Now, 40 days and 40 nights is an interesting number. It can mean 40 days and 40 nights, but it, technically it means the amount of time required to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. It can rain for 40 days and 40 nights, or it can rain long enough to flood the earth. You can go into the wilderness to fast or Mount Sinai 40 days and 40 nights to commune with God, or it can be 160 days and 160 nights, or it might be 10. Or it still can be 40. It doesn't mean that it isn't, but it, the, the uh, symbolic meaning of 40 is the amount of time required to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And so it says, And God put, put, uh, created the body of Adam and left him lying there in this council in heaven for 40 days and 40 nights, and he sighs over him daily. And then he tells all of us who are there, all of the spirits who are there, if I put the breath of life in him, then this is what you're going to have to go through. And he goes through all of the pain, the suffering, the sorrows. We had to know, we knew what it would be like if we had to suffer through cancer or through leukemia. We knew what it would be like to lose uh, a loved one in death or, in, in, uh, or a child. We knew it not only physically, but we had to understand it spiritually. And he told it. We, we understood every aspect of this life. God told us how bad this life could be. Not necessarily, I don't believe, and it doesn't mention it necessarily for our personal life, but how rotten this life could be. He, we had to know it and understand it perfectly. This changed He laid my, it out perfectly for us. And we had to understand it. Didn't pull any punches. And we had to understand it. And this is important. We had to understand it. Because if we didn't understand it and raised our hand to come here, then our agency has been compromised. We had to know it. And people will say, well, we really have to experience to really know it. I don't believe so. I think God can put it in our hearts and our minds. He can place a, an experience there that would be more real in multi-dimensions than it would be in a three-dimensional world. Super video game. <laughs> Super. So he says, if I put the breath of life in him, then this is what you're going to have to go through. This is the pain. This is the suffering. This is the emotional pain, the physical pain, the mental pain you're going to have to go through. And not only that, he tells them in this text, not only that, he says, but then you're going to start sinning and you're going to separate yourself from me and from this relationship unless I give you, unless there is some way provided, a plan provided and a savior provided for, for you to come back to me. At that point in the text, Christ steps up and says, put the breath of life in him. I'll be the savior for mankind. I'll do the, I'll do the work of the gospel down there. I'll be the savior of mankind. Then the father turns to Christ and says, okay, then this is what you're going to have to go through in order to do that. You sure you want to do that? Yes. He says, this is what you're going to have to do. And finally, Christ says, go ahead and put the breath of life in him. I will redeem mankind. And then God puts the breath of life into the body that's there now in this pre-earth council. 
Adam jumps up now and he says to God, he says, you have placed me into a state in which I have never before existed. He can feel the difference that the physical body makes. And then God says to all of the spirits there, come talk to the Father, the God of your physical bodies. Come talk to him and ask him what it's like to have this physical body. And then one Satan comes up or Lucifer comes up and says, why should I come to a being younger than I? He should be coming to me. I should be the first one down there. I should be, I should be the prophet, priest, and king of all mankind. I should be the one down there. And what an interesting, what an interesting uh, story. Oh, it's it's just unbelievable. So Satan, they try and they try, they try and get Satan to accept the plan of salvation with this. And it says, when they saw his pride was complete, meaning that he would never, never, ever, 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 never change. It says they took the writing from his hand, which represents priesthood in these contexts. And it says they took a sickle and they cut him from shoulder to shoulder right through to the vertebrae and set his bounds to the horizon of the earth and cast him and those that followed him to the earth. Now, Adam did that as Michael, who's the same. There's nine different existences of Adam, but he did it as Michael now because he has a physical body. And once that happens, now Michael can be placed, as all of our scriptures say, he was placed, he was created from the dust of the earth, but placed in the Garden of Eden to begin the creation. Now, when I learned this, when I started seeing this, and then I started seeing it all over in our doctrine and our scriptures, I realized that I was there. And that after I knew how rotten life could be, it changed my outlook. I don't have any trials or tribulations anymore at all. I have a life that I chose to participate in. Because you, you got to vote. I got to vote, but I had to know how rotten it could be. Not that it necessarily will be, but how rotten it could be. I know people who had much harder lives than I have. I've been working on a book for a lady who lost all three of her daughters and her son, and she's writing a book about it. I'm helping her with that. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, well I, it changed my life because I realized I don't have trials and tribulations. I can't blame God for anything no. that happens to me, not for anything, because I chose to participate in this life that I knew full well how rotten it could be, and therefore I don't have trials. I have a life. The Germans used to say, uh, when I was there in 1965 and 66, we taught a lot of people who were young or ad adults during World War II stories about the fire and the fire bombs in Dresden, and they'd always say, "Warum lässt Gott das zu?" Why does why did God permit that? Well, now that's the answer. Well, you agreed to it, so quit complaining. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? It, you agreed to it, quit complaining. It is. I mean, once you understand this concept, once you begin to understand that, you don't have trials and tribulations. The question was asked Christ one time, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he said that the power of God might be made manifest. Why did the bombs fall on Dresden? Perhaps so the power of God might be made manifest in the lives of these people. Why do I have to suffer so much? Perhaps that the power of God might be manifest in 
people's lives that I come in contact. That can learn from your experience. We are to mourn with those who have mourn with those that mourn. Mourn with those and comfort those, and we go through experiences so we can help others. Lift up the hands and hang down. Well, Bruce, this has been incredible. I wish we could go on forever, but sooner or later we've got to put an end to this because the megabytes on my podcast will be will be too big, and they won't they won't let me send it. People won't be able to get it. But uh, thank you very much. I'm Greg Gerard here for Latter-day Radio. We've been talking with Bruce Porter. Uh, Bruce, do you have a website? Um, I do for my classes. I, I teach classes, and it's, uh, it's uh, bhporter.net. Uh, I've, I've got a bookstore where I've written a lot of this stuff down. Ah, uh, bookstore. That's what they want to know. Yeah, I've, got, I've written 12, uh, I think 12 books now, 12 different little books uh, mostly for my classes, but they can order those books on that on the website there, and it's bhporter.net. All right. This is a, coming to the close of another Latter-day Radio podcast. Uh, check our website out at latterdayradio.com. You'll find other things that you may not have seen already, and we can, we'll try to continue to freshen this up with new material from people like Bruce Porter. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next time. This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information.